Hey everybody, welcome back to Simply Holy Holiday, a practical guide for making the holidays holy days. And welcome to Advent. I'm so excited. Our first week. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, you can't see this, but I am fully clad in my purple sweater, my purple jewelry. <laughs> I've got my purple candle burning, uh, candle number one, the week of hope. And of course, that's me jumping in both feet to this season. The color purple represents the season of repentance, and I am all in, baby. So I'm very excited to get started into this. We're just going to have a brief review today just to remind you that we are trying to grow in our holiness by implementing practices that help us to feel the presence of God. That's why this entire 70-day journey has been entitled Emmanuel, God is with us. Sometimes we can find ourselves, you know, praying that God will go with us, that God will be with us, but God has already promised that he's with us. Jesus said before he went back up into heaven, I I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So the problem is not that God is not with us and that we have to beg him to be with us. The real problem in us is recognizing his presence, remembering that he is here. Emmanuel, God came and dwelled among us. Jesus was with us. That's why one of his names is Emmanuel. And we can experience the presence of God. We want to be able to grow in that experience. So having said that, that is our basic review for today. We're going to jump right in. We're going to be reading today from Matthew 22 and Zephaniah, that small minor prophet at the end of your Old Testament. So you might want to get that set up for yourself. And we're going to be reading from the NIV today. Um, But before we get into it, I just wanted to warn you, give you fair warning that up to this point, I've been doing a lot of teaching and introducing these practices. But today is definitely more like a sermon. I feel like God has put something on my heart that he that he's really been teaching me and he's wanting to say to us, I think. Um, but the last thing I want to do is let my my own thoughts and my own personality get in the way. And I'm probably extra sensitive to it right now because I have really been looking at the Enneagram for any of you that are into that. Um, it's just a way to uh, it's a personality sort of typing thing. And I am a one. Uh, for those of you who know, the nickname for that is the Reformer or the Crusader, which I'm sure is not a surprise to anyone. But the beautiful thing about the Enneagram, I actually recommend it to everyone because I've been into it right now, just entering into this time of reflection, sort of introspection, looking at myself, trying to um, get more in touch with who I am and who God created me to be. And I feel like the Enneagram does a good job of sort of uncovering your original design, you know, the good parts of your personality type, the who, you know, how you were uniquely formed um, by God. And when he said, it is good, he, he gave you a unique personality. And remember, he said, it is good. So everything that we do in order to repent is really just a way to get us to return to our original design. And whenever we are able to be to grow in our holiness, to grow in our ability to be more like Jesus and become more godly, it's really returning us to that original design. And then God can use us in incredible ways. He can make your design just shine and you can use all the great parts of how you were created. Um, And with that, of course, every personality has its pitfalls, its shortcomings, its failures, all of those things. You can get into an unhealthy pattern. Every personality 
archetype has its own unhealthy patterns. And, uh, you know, I don't want my own personality to get in the way of truth. So one of the things that a one can struggle with is just, you know, I want things to be my way. I've said this a billion times, but, you know, I've got a great idea. I've got a better way and everybody should do things my way. And I think that that can come through in my speaking a lot that this is about, you know, do it this way, do it that way. And I really just want to be make sure that it's not that, but that there is a truth higher than all of us. There is a way that God wants us to go. There is a way that is higher. And so I'm praying that this whole you know, sermon will really get all of us to rise up to that higher level of God's way. It's not my way. It's God's way. So I just want to pray in preparation that um, God will speak through me and that we will be able to hear his voice through this. So let's pray. God, I want to pray that you will speak through me today. I want to pray that you will help us to hear your voice. I pray that we would all be lifted to the place that is higher than us and that we would be able to um, really experience your presence through your word today. God, speak to us. We are listening to you. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. Okay, let's start reading. We're going to be reading through some of the parables in the next few weeks, but today I wanted to start with the parable of the wedding banquet. And this has always been a parable that has sort of confounded me. It's confusing to me. It has been in the past. But as I have said to, to you before, I listen to the Baymont podcast a lot now. And something that I've learned through that is that um, you know, anytime you find something in the Bible that's confusing or confounding that you, it, you know, as I used to just skip over those things, I'd be like, well, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to skip over it because there was so much of it that did make sense to me. I'm like, well, even the stuff that does make sense, it's, you know, it's, I'm already full with that. I don't know how to answer all this stuff that I don't understand. But what I've learned through Marty and Brent is just to lean into those passages and know anytime I find something weird in the scriptures, it's because um, probably there's a reference to something that I'm just unfamiliar with that maybe a Hebrew reader or um, somebody in a different culture would actually hear it, but I'm not able to hear it because I wasn't sort of raised in that culture. And so when I find something that is troubling, I can think, oh, I wonder what it's talking about. I can probably find that in the text, they say. Somewhere in the text of the Old Testament, it's probably going to make it more clear. And that's never so, never more true than when you're talking about the parables. Um, you know, I've learned that with these parables, Jesus, there's many different levels to a parable. There's the higher level, which is... Um, more on the surface, which is just what is the analogy he's trying to make? The farmer, the, the fisherman, the whatever. And what is the origin, what is the um, sort of the obvious lesson and analogy that's being drawn? And it's not shallow. That in itself is very deep. But then there's a level below, below that where Jesus or any rabbi is really referencing something that the listener at this time would have known to, and would have heard it from the Old Testament. There's always some sort of Old Testament reference that they're, that they're referring to that I probably would miss just being an average 21st century Christian. Um, and then there's also a, an even, I want to say deeper level or a third level. And that is, uh, you know, I, I think it's something more akin to something that God is teaching you directly as something about the 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 application to your personal you know it's sort of an, a personal aha moment i guess that's the way that i 
can describe that. I'm sure I didn't get that all correctly, but um, it's really opened my eyes to the ways that I read the parables. And this has come to mean so much to me. And I wanted to just kind of share it with you. So in Matthew 22, it starts off by saying, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, this kingdom of heaven is like a kingdom, a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I've repaired the dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. Okay, I wanna just stop right here and just make note of the fact that this is how God is describing his, king, his kingdom. Jesus is giving us this picture of this huge party, this huge banquet, and this is the way we really need to see God. We have to remind ourselves that this needs to be the frame around our Christian life, that we serve an incredible king, a generous, loving, abundant king, and he has provided for us. He provides every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So the kingdom of heaven is, is like this big banquet. And even the kingdom here on earth is like this because God has given us everything we need and he has provided for us in every single way. But what has happened is that God oftentimes is presented as a miser. He gets the shaft. Satan has been successful in making God look like he's holding out on us, just like he was all the way to the garden when Eve, when he was talking to Eve, he made God look like he was holding out on her. And that's God, that's what Satan wants us to see. If we want to think of God as, as, as miserly, as if he's holding out, as if he's making sure he's a, he's a dictator and he's a harsh God and he's always exacting. He's making sure that we're following all the rules and you got to be like this to get in here. We have to make sure that that is not our vision of God at all. And actually, uh, it's, it's my goal in life. Honestly, one of the passions of my soul is to try to present God as the incredibly abundant provider that he is, to give him the glory that he deserves, to present him accurately to a world that looks at him as if he is, as if he's mean and he is not. He gets the shaft. This is who God is. We have to make sure that this is our frame. And that even the good things, any good thing that you find on this earth, we're supposed to be enjoying that. God created us. He created this incredible design. He's, he's made people who are incredible artists, incredible musicians, incredible chefs. He wants us to enjoy the food and the beauty and the art and the music of this world. Everything that's good, everything that we enjoy is from him. I would think that the kingdom of heaven is just all of that same stuff, only just devoid of all the, you know, the sin and the, and the heartache and the pain that gets involved on this earth. I can't wait for that. We have to remember this needs to be our framework, a framework of abundance. So we have these people that he sends out, he sends out his servants, right? And they go out and they try to invite the people, but the people don't come. But why don't they come? They don't come because they're too busy, right? They're too busy with their businesses. They're too busy with farm, their, their fields, their, their home, the creation of what they're doing, their own business. They're too busy to think of going to visit this, you know, this party that's going on. Now we can look at it here and we can go, oh my gosh, if they only knew what they were being invited to. But their minds were so preoccupied with whatever they had going on that they could not see the good that was right in front of them. 
Is that not us? That's what I'm asking, disciple. Is this not us? We're entering into this time of Advent, but yet many of us are still too busy. We're too busy to think it through. We're too flustered. We're too, and I want us to really stop and think in this moment for just a moment of truth that if we're still too busy during COVID, is that just a problem in our own character that we're just keeping ourselves too busy? You know, this, this whole time, um, it has shifted, like how much, where we work, where we put our energy, how we have to do that. And for me, some things have become more, a little bit more burdensome. For some of you, it has become. Now you're, you're trying to oversee your kids' education, but you're doing that while you're working. And, and you know, we, we had to learn how to do this whole virtual thing. And it was really, some of you are running businesses on half of your manpower. And that is true. But let's not be too busy to notice what's going on right now to the feast that we're about to enter into. Let's really check that part of us. Okay, so that's the first part. If you pick it up in verse 6, I think it is, it says, um, oh, no, no, it's a little bit further on in the second part of that, verse 7, it says, the king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city, which can sound so harsh. Now, when you get the 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 reference to the old testament which we're going to go back in a minute it will it will make sense to you more it says then he said to his servants the wedding banquet is ready but those i invited did not deserve to come so go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find so the servants went out to the street and gathered all the people they could find the bad as well as the good and the wedding hall was filled with guests but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, my friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited, but few are chosen. And this is where I would always lose it in the past, get to this point where this guy's not dressed in the right way and so he gets kicked out and he's like weeping and gnashing your teeth. I'd be like, what is that? But then I realized I really just don't have the cultural or biblical context to take it in, in the way that it was probably intended. First of all, I don't know the Old Testament well enough to, to actually make the correlations that I think that they would probably have made. And I don't have the cultural context for weddings where I guess with the attire is somehow with the banquets, the feasts, that, that the attire had something all to do with it. It might have been provided. But I do have a modern day analogy, and that is these really fancy, nice restaurants where um, they have a stand or a code for attire. It's coat and tie apparel only. But if you, if you show up and you don't have a coat and tie, it will be provided for you. And so I think this is a great way for us to take in the scripture is like, yeah, we can go to the restaurant. We can be a part of this fancy, nice atmosphere. They want to keep the atmosphere super nice and, and, and the food is prepared by the best chefs and it's a really great feast. And yes, you can come. You just have to make sure that you wear your, you know, we'll provide a coat and tie for you. And I think this is meant for us to, to look at this spiritually. Like we look at this thinking about how many of us, all of us are invited to the kingdom of God. All of us are invited. 
But sometimes we want the blessings of God, we want the blessings of the party without having to do it God's way, to wear God's attire. We don't want to change our clothes. We don't want to, to take off the old self, as it says. We don't want to you know, put on the new self. We don't want to put on the new clothes, the new garment, be dressed in white. We're not, uh, we're, we are not up for all the purifying that it would take to get our robes white. And so we want the blessings, but we don't want the ways of God. It's just rude. It's rude that we would want God to bless us in the way that we want to be blessed, but not be willing to give up what's, keep, what's actually keeping us from those blessings to begin with. We have to really check ourselves. Are we willing to take off the old self? Are we willing to enter into this time of repentance? Many people are not. They don't want to take off any more clothes. They don't want to, they don't want to deal anymore. And I totally know how this feels. First of all, if you've been dealing with hardship, heartache, pain. But I want to assure you that what's on the other side of that is pure white garments that you will get to wear. A beautiful party that you'll get to enjoy. And some of us just need to realize that we've been stubborn and we just have come into this party thinking, well, this is just the way I am. There's certain things about me that can't change and this is my personality and other people are just going to have to adjust to it. Other people are just going to have to get used to it. You don't know. Other people aren't going to have to get used to it. You need to change. We need to change. We need to become more like God. We need to become more like Jesus. We need to be willing to change our clothes to enter into the party. So as I've been thinking about that, that's just been going over and over and over in my mind. I've been turning it over in my heart. I realized that this really does go back to Zephaniah. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there's other references, but when I read this, this really did make sense to me. So I want us to go over and be able to read from Zephaniah right now. And, um, you know, Zephaniah, just to give you some point of reference, he was a prophet that was sent to speak to the tribe of Judah. Now, in history, so you know what happened. Um, God had already sent his prophets to the northern kingdom, the Israelite kingdom. Um, and he had warned them, you need to repent, you need to repent. But they wouldn't repent. And so they got, they got overrun by the Assyrians and they were taken captive. And if you remember in this, uh, this little, this parable, the first time it says, you know, he sent his people out and he, and he said, come to the party, come to the party. And they wouldn't come because they were too busy. They were too busy looking after themselves. They were too busy looking after their own families. They were too busy, uh, uh, you know, gathering their own wealth and doing things their own way to consider the party. And they rejected the offer. And, and so, you know, God let them be taken over. Actually, their city was burned. They were burned to the ground. They were replaced. They were taken out of their land and they had to go to live with the Assyrians and the Assyrians took over their land. And that was probably that first reference. But after that, you know, the, the, the tribe of Judah, they held on a little bit longer. They were still willing to repent. And so with Hezekiah, and um, they, they sort of lasted a little bit longer. But after that, it just kept going downhill and they ceased to listen and they ceased to, they just weren't listening to the prophets anymore. So God had sent them Zephaniah and trying to get them to repent. You know, come on, Judah, you can do this. Repent, do it God's way. And so he was sent to this tribe of Judah just before they were getting ready to be taken over by the Babylonians, which we know that happened. But this is before that. All right, let's start reading in verse four. It says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, 
those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Okay, let's press pause and just talk about what we just read. So we do see that God is speaking to Judah, trying to warn them of what's coming, but also trying to correct them. He's trying to correct the things he wants them to change. And he does call out the priest right from the very beginning, saying he's going to wipe out the very names of the idolatrous priests. But before we start thinking about this passage being for the leadership or the people in charge, remember, we, you and I, disciple, we are the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We are the priests. So we need to take to heart everything that he's saying. And I know that this was specifically written for the people of Judah at the time, but I would swear that it could be written for America right now and the American church and for you and me. So I urge you right now to go through it with me and think about your own life and what God is warning you about. He says, I am going to wipe out all of this idolatry. These people that are worshiping the universe, the sky, the stars, the everything. They're worshiping the bales. They're bowing down to everything. And sometimes we can have chronological snobbery and look back at this time and think, how could they be worshiping these, you know, these stone statues and whatever? We're so much more evolved. But really, we have, we're not that much more evolved. We just have different kinds of idols. We're bowing down to something. We're bowing down to money. We're bowing down to power. We're bowing down to the praise of man. We're bowing down to our comfort. We're bowing down to our own vices, whether it's overeating or drinking or spending or, or wasting time on our, you know, our devices. All of these things, we are bowing down to something. We have idols in our life. We are just like Rachel, who, when she left her father's house she took to, to marry Jacob, she took with her the household gods. All of us have these little gods in our pockets that we pull out. And while we are worshiping God, yes, of course we're worshiping God, but we're also worshiping this too. It is God plus this. It is God and we have to identify these things that we are bowing down to. And if you have a hard time doing that, I will tell you the best way to figure out if something has become an idol in your life, you're drinking, you're eating, you're whatever you're turning to in these times or whatever you're doing, just take it away. That's the best way to know if something's become an idol. You think that you've been bowing down to something, take it away. You'll know pretty soon by how much you think about it and how much you crave it if it's become an idol in your life. You can also think about it in terms of what you think about the most. We tend to worship what we're thinking about the most. What are you thinking about the most? What are you waking up thinking about? What are you going to bed thinking about? What keeps turning itself over in your brain? Likely that has become what you worship. These people were worshiping gods that required them to sacrifice their children. That's what they were doing. They actually found that when they excavated Phoenicia that they found hundreds of thousands of infant skeletons they had been putting 
their infants, their children on the fires of Molech. And we can look down on them and think, how could they do that? But are we not doing the same thing? Is America not guilty of killing thousands upon thousands of unborn children? And even those children who are born to us, sometimes we're offering them up on a sacrifice on the altar of our own, of our own egos and of our own ambitions and of our own schedules and of our own comfort. All the things that we're so busy going after and bowing down to these things that we don't have time for these children. Are we not offering them up on the altars before the bales? Come on. Think about it. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Then he goes on to say, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. You know, some of us have turned back. <laughs> We've just turned back. Our bodies may be still be present in whatever situation of church that we have. We may not be in a building, but whatever group. We may still be here in our bodies, but our spirits have left the building. We're not thinking, we're not inquiring of God anymore. We think we've done that. It's not worked. It's too hard. I can't. And we have grown weary in doing good. He says, be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. This is what now we see what that parable is talking about. We have been invited and he will consecrate us, which just means a purifying. That's what he required the priests to do, to purify themselves before they became before they came into the temple to serve him. He wanted them to wash their garments and he wanted them to change their clothes and be clean. That's what he's asking of us. Those who are entering into the feast, he's saying, take off the old self. Be willing to take off the old clothes and be purified and be dressed in white. He will consecrate you. He will take care of it. The clothes have been provided. <laughs> Coat and tie has been provided. You have to just put them on. And he says, and the sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. And there we get that reference that these people were um, wearing the attire of the gods, the other gods that they were worshiping. And then he says, on that day, I will punish all those who avoid stepping on the threshold. If you're not, if you can't remember that story, it's that story of when the Israelites had the Ark of the Covenant that they would carry everywhere with them. It was holy and it was, you know, it was like carrying God's presence with them. But the Philistines stole it and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And so, when they got up in the morning after that, after that, they saw that Dagon had, was flat on his face. He had fallen over and he was prostrate before the ark like he was worshiping the God of the Israelites. And they freaked out. They put the God, you know, they put Dagon back up. And the next day they came and he'd fallen over again. And this time his head and his, his hands had broken off and they were on the, thre on the threshold. And that's why they, they uh, you know, they would avoid the threshold. They would never stay, stay, uh, stand on the threshold when they would come into that temple. So this is God, you know, making himself known as the God of all gods. They actually ended up returning the covenant because they were so scared of it. Because <laughs> they could see that their God was nothing compared to the God of the Israelites. And he's saying, you who are still worshiping that God. He's speaking to those who are still stepping over the threshold to worship that God. They had gone back to the gods that they even knew were not even in the same arena as our God. They had gone back to worshiping these inferior gods. That's what God is saying to us. What are you, what are you bringing back? What are you going back to? 
What are the gods that you've gone back to worshiping? Take note of that right now. This is the time to look at that. Then he says, on that day, in verse 10, declares the Lord, I a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in the market district. All you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are what? Complacent. Not punish those who are, you know, who are sexually immoral, who are practicing homosexuality, who are, you know, doing all these things that we're looking at as the worst things that could happen. No, those who are complacent, who are like wine left on the dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered. Their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink new wine. Let, later on, when you jump down to verse 18, it says, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And I look at this and I just go, oh my goodness, this could be, this could be describing us right now. You know, God has done everything to, to you know, mess up our current culture. Think about 2020, all that we are enduring right now, all the, the pandemic, the social injustice, the hurricanes, the fires. He has upset everything. The cart has been, you know, toppled over and our economy will never be the same. But it is not our economy that is going to save us. It is not our silver in it, uh, or our gold. We could build these houses. We may not even be in them in a year's, year's time. You know, this has really come to mind for me as we've been searching for houses and I'm like, well, I have no idea what the future is going to hold. I certainly can't put my hope in this house or this economy. He's calling on these people. He's saying, quit being so complacent. Get your heart for me back. Stop looking at all of this to go back to normal. Is that what we're waiting on, disciples? Are we waiting on that, church? Are we, uh, have we gotten to the place where we're like, well, whatever. Like these people have gone to this place like, God's not going to do anything. The Lord's not doing anything good or bad. Nothing's happening. So what's the use? Has that become our attitude during this time? Are we so focused on the fact that the doors of the church are closing, that we're missing what is being opened? What are the new doors that God is opening? We have to look for the new thing that God is doing. Yes, he has said no to all of these things right now, but what is he saying yes to? We can't con become complacent. We can't become too comfortable in what's going on right now. We can't just sit around and wait for things to go back to normal. We can't put our trust in our gold and our silver, in our economy and how things go in our country. It's a higher level, guys. We have to get off of Democrat versus Republican and, and conservative versus liberal and the church and all of that. We have to raise up above this and get back to what God is doing up here. We have to bring ourselves up out of the muck and not let ourselves become complacent. He who has ears, let him hear. God is inviting us to this incredible banquet. He's inviting us in here, but he's saying you need to change your clothes. <laughs> You have been, you have been invited, my friend, but what are you putting your hope in? Isn't that this week? That's what we're talking about is hope. What are we putting our hope in? Are we putting our hope in things getting back to normal? 
Are we putting our hope in when we will get to see so-and-so again, or when we'll get to have this meeting again, or when we'll be able to do this again, Where it, or, or when our jobs will be restored again? I have no idea, and I know some people are hurting so badly because their job has, they've been let go. They have lost their jobs, but God is going to recreate you, disciple. Put your hope in God. You know, I look to the hills, so where does my hope come from? My hope has to be found in God. This is where our hope comes from. The, this is the invitation of the season. Let God consecrate you. Let God put you in new clothing. Be willing to change your clothes. Take off the old self. Put on the new self. That is the invitation of Advent so that when we get to celebrate, it will be so awesome. And these are the words I feel like God wanted me to speak to you today. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I am so excited. It is a process. Remember this, guys, that God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's a process. Let God do his work, and I'll see you next time.